Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shaded Towards the Left podcast. I'm John Parker, and this is episode three. I'm joined by Cheryl Ring, and I will let Cheryl introduce herself. Well, thank you very much for having me, John. My name is indeed Cheryl Ring. I am a litigation attorney. I'm the legal director at a legal aid agency in the Chicago area called Open Communities, and I'm a staff writer and assistant editor for Beyond the Box Score. And thank you for uh, taking the time out of your Sunday to join us, Cheryl. Um, the, the the big topics um, in baseball right now, of course, the, the Houston Astros cheating scandal. Um, but I feel like that's been talked about ad nauseum everywhere. Um, there's so much good stuff to read and listen to about it out there. But, um, you know, uh, I think what's being undercovered is the, the fallback of the Mookie Betts uh, trade the, the blowback going to Boston. Um, was, he was traded along with David Price for um, Jeter Downs, Alex Verdugo, um, and Connor Wong, a catching prospect. Um, and there's quite a bit to say about that trade and how it impacts the Red Sox and their fans. But I know you've you've written and talked rather extensively about Alex Verdugo, who's the centerpiece here. So, um, what what has your research on Verdugo uncovered, and what would you like Red Sox fans to know about their their new right fielder? So um, last year, Jessica Caroli broke a story on her blog, Heels on the Field, about Verdugo's involvement um, in 2015 when he was still in the minor leagues. He was in a group of players that included James Baldwin and Julio Urias. Um, and that group of players evidently was present for the the beating of an underage girl and the sexual assault of an underage girl. Verdugo's involvement in the sexual assault is unclear. He was not the person who actually did the sexual assault, although according to reports, he was in the bathroom of the hotel room where it occurred. But he was very likely the player who recorded her being beaten and uploaded that video to Snapchat. Um, at the time, the, the Dodgers organization took very little action in regards to it. Um, Verdugo was, it, the, the Dodgers organization, the minor league system at the time was run by Gabe Kapler, who's since managed the Phillies and now manages the Giants. Um, and Kapler's idea was to use this as a teaching opportunity. He attempted to, uh, to force the, the survivor to have dinner with Verdugo, Baldwin, and Urias, so they could apologize to her. Um, she obviously declined. And then they really took no action beyond that. Um, Kapler has a statement on his blog about it in which he says that he didn't notify the police because he wasn't sure what her wishes were. Um, given she filed a police report, that seems a little bit um, disingenuous. But the reality is Verdugo's role in this incident has never been fully fleshed out. And even now, with a few questions he's been asked about it, he's focused in his answers on how the, this reporting has hurt him. And he's yet to really take responsibility for his own role in an incredibly traumatic event in a 17-year-old girl's life. She was 17 at the time. And I wrote for Beyond the Box Score that there are very real questions about the fallout from this particular incident, especially because it should be noted, Julio Urias, one of the players involved in this group, Urias has since been suspended for violating the domestic violence policy. And there is some research that suggests that when where there is no, and 
as you know, I've written extensively about how zero tolerance doesn't work. But at the same time, where there is no responsibility whatsoever, that's that tends to increase recidivism. And so what, what you're talking about with Verdugo is trading the arguably the second best player in baseball, the face of your franchise for a player who has very real baggage um, and baggage that really has never been fully litigated either in a court or in the media. We, we really don't know everything that happened. And I think it's important for people to understand the seriousness of what he was involved in and also the seriousness of the fact that the Dodgers really didn't do anything about it at the time. So what do you ultimately propose be done? Because I know that zero tolerance doesn't work and I know that um, – I guess, quote unquote, full tolerance obviously doesn't work either. So what do you propose that the Dodgers do or had done um, at the time? What do you propose that the Red Sox do now that they have a player that they know is involved in this incident? And what should the league do as a whole different from what they're doing right now? So a few weeks ago, I wrote for Beyond the Box score a proposal about a proposal to replace the current domestic violence policy, because what we have right now with with the current domestic violence policy is essentially a public relations. It, it's for public relations. Um, and there's that's for a few reasons. There, the policy, number one, continues to incentivize teams to trade for domestic abusers by allowing them to participate in the postseason. We saw that with Roberto Osuna. And even getting rid of that one particular loophole doesn't solve the problem because we are still treating players who are domestic abusers almost as distressed assets, lowering their prices so that contenders can take advantage of their domestic abuse. And that's kind of horrifying. The, the second issue with the domestic with the domestic abuse policy is that because there's no set schema of how of, of how many games are going to be in each suspension, what we are finding is there essentially every single suspension is a negotiated settlement between the player and Major League Baseball, which puts the MLBPA in the bizarre position of defending domestic abusers and trying to keep their suspensions down and puts MLB in the strange position of using the union as a reason for why suspensions aren't harsher. It's just another example of Manfred trying to undermine the unions, trying to undermine the union, basically. And then the, the biggest issue, because there is this lack of predictability, because we don't know how many games each suspension is going to be. So you have this disparate treatment that's going on where players generally, and there, there is a correlation so far, two very sort of distressing correlations. Number one, players who make more money tend to get shorter suspensions. And also of the, the 15 players who have been placed on administrative leave pursuant to the policy, 13 have been players of color. And the, the statistics show that the people most likely to commit intimate partner violence in the United States are straight white men. So it simply doesn't make sense that of the 15 players who have been caught, 13 have been players of color simply because that's how it happened. There are white players who are committing intimate partner violence, and this policy is either not catching them or Major League Baseball is doing nothing about it. So when you put all of this together, 
you have a situation where the policy isn't really doing anything that it's supposed to be doing. It's allowing for instances like the Roberto Osuna trade. It is creating a situation where you have disparate treatment across salary lines, across racial lines, and it's undermining the union, which is something that Rob Manford really wants to do anyway. So what I proposed was a system with a, similar to the PED system with staggered fixed suspension levels, because Major League Baseball should not be in a situation where it's determining a sliding scale of intimate partner violence, as Michael Bauman once put it, um, and instead proposing a system where it is putting the needs of the survivor first. So forfeited salary can go to the survivor first and foremost. Number two, if there's if we're going to have a situation where we're putting the survivor's needs first, that means that we need to protect the survivor from any kind of backlash or retaliation suffered as a result of this. And so one of the things we need to do is allow for the survivor to be in the driver's seat of this kind of discipline. Um, so what, one thing that I point to a lot is how Aroldis Chapman, during his suspension, was supposed to get regular counseling. He went to one counseling session and then stopped. Under the plan that I proposed, that wouldn't be allowed to happen, that whether or not a player got reinstated early would depend on the survivor's assessment of progress and whether or not uh, he or she was safe with the with the player's progress and basically allowed the survivor to control that narrative instead of the more zero tolerance approach that we've tried now that doesn't really work. And lastly, we need to extend this to the minor leagues as well. We talk a lot about treating minor leaguers as people, and that's absolutely true. But at the same time, we cannot simply treat players, major leaguers or minor leaguers, as distressed assets, as stocks to be bought and sold, which is what we're doing. And this is the flip side of the of de the dehumanization of the players who are in Major League Baseball, because when you stop treating them like humans, then you stop accounting for the vagaries of human behavior, which is what we've seen with the domestic violence policy. Um, and it's worth noting that this is very much a cultural issue. Had uh, had Brandon Taubman not yelled, thank effing God we got Osuna at Allison Footer, we probably would never have known about the Astros cheating scandal in the first place. And th that's a really interesting angle to this that I feel like is very undercovered. So what should the Dodgers have done with Verdugo at the time, given we're talking about an actual sexual assault? They should have notified the authorities. Um, but just like with Felipe Vasquez, who is currently in prison for awaiting trial on charges that he sexually assaulted a 15-year-old girl. And we need to address the underlying idea that there is a disparity in how these things are handled. Roger Clemens had what we call a relationship with Mindy McCready. She was 15 at the time when that started. And very few people have talked about the need to look at Clemens the same way we look at Vasquez. So this is a very complex issue with a lot of moving parts. But at bottom, we need to address the cultural issue, which seems to be that domestic violence is somehow a tertiary issue because it plays into every part of the game. And once you've started dehumanizing anybody, you start dehumanizing them in every single way. And this is one one way in which that manifests across the game. So I'm glad you brought up the, the complexities of the issue because it obviously is very complex and a very under-discussed little wrinkle there is that teams cannot 
release players, even if they take a stronger stance than other teams on domestic violence. So the Phillies were able to outright Oduble Herrera off of the 40-man roster and send him to minor league camp um, under the domestic violence agreement, though they could not release him for non-baseball reasons. And considering his baseball performance in the past, they could not have released him and justified doing so for baseball reasons. Do you think that it wades too close to zero tolerance to allow teams to release players. Do you think they should be able to kind of wipe their hands of the situation um, and and have a, have a zero tolerance policy on the team level for domestic violence? So according to the research, and Cindy Southworth has done some really fantastic research on this, zero tolerance just doesn't work and can oftentimes backfire, make things worse for survivors instead of better. So, Uh, On a superficial level, I think that allowing teams to release players outright is probably a mistake if our goal is going to be to protect survivors. And I think that's what the goal of a policy should be. That said, I think there is a point where release is warranted if the if the player in question has either violated the terms of discipline or in the case of Chapman, for example, refused to go to counseling. If there is simply no way that the player in question is going to cooperate, then at that point, the, there is a question as to whether or not they should remain on the team's payroll. So I think that, as with all things, this is a matter of shades of gray. If we're going to have a policy, you have to, the research is pretty clear, you have to make sure it's a survivor-centric policy that gives players the opportunity to be rehabilitated when they have offended in this way. At the same time, there also is a point past which you don't want that player on their payroll because what has been done is simply too severe. And I think of instances like Felipe Vasquez, for example, where you're not going to want a child rapist on your team, irrespective of how much counseling they go to. So I think this in this instance, this is a matter of if we're going to allow teams to release players, it should be for either conduct where there are where there are actual criminal charges or in the instance that there is a, there is such clear noncompliance with the policy that there is essentially no other alternative. But again, this goes back to, I believe, the failure of Major League Baseball as an institution to appropriately educate people in its not only as at a cultural level in terms of the culture of Major League Baseball, but in terms of this is a sport that you're playing where masculinity is prioritized and we're not showing the darker sides of that. So for me, I think the biggest issue with the domestic violence policy is that it's inherently reactive as opposed to proactive. You want to be able to go in and say, this, this is not acceptable behavior, and this is why. And that's something that some sports have done with greater success than others. But one other side of this, and I use this example a lot, if you look across different sports, there is a reason why you can name five or six queer athletes off the top of your head in, women's, in prof- professional women's sports and not in men's sports. And it's very much the same issue, that when you have toxic masculinity that sort of permeates the, the fabric of Major League Baseball, National Football League. There's a reason why these sports have, suffer with these problems. And at the same time, you have so few LGBTQ players. It is very much the same issue. So I'm looking at this from the perspective of domestic violence needs to be expressed 
and in a proactive way as never acceptable. The discipline does not have to be zero tolerance, but the culture does, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So what what do you propose for a, a more proactive? Like in my head, I'm thinking every spring training, all of the players have however many hours of classes just about domestic violence and what constitutes domestic violence and why it's wrong. And as trivial as that sounds to me sitting here, it's clearly something that people don't realize necessarily what's domestic violence and what isn't. And I think that's part of it and it's an important part of it, but it has to go beyond that. Um, So this is something that permeates the culture, not just of the game, not just of the, the sport, but of the game as a whole. We saw Jonah Carey, for example, who was essentially protected by the media because he was a member of the media even after the charges were brought against him for abusing his wife. There was very little coverage of it in the media, essentially because he's, quote unquote, one of our own. Um, We saw this with with a member of the San Francisco Giants front office, Larry Bear, who was where there where there was an incident of him assaulting his wife in public. This is something that starts from the top down. So if we're going to start having this kind of culture of accountability, it can't just be the players. It has to be everyone. And it also has to be more than just in spring training, especially when you're talking about an incident, when you're talking about something where we're still not paying players for spring training if they're in the minor leagues. So What needs to happen is a culture of accountability that is more than just a class that you sit in. This is something where it's constantly being reinforced as behavior that is not okay, all the way from the front office down through the minor leagues so that it is clear there isn't any disparate treatment. Everyone's getting the same message. So what about the current policy then would you keep? Because... I'm hearing a lot about this is what I this is the new plan and I agree with all points. Is there anything in the current domestic violence policy as written that you think is valuable to use as a stepping stone to a much more improved plan that you've been talking about? Honestly, there isn't much. And I say that because the current plan in practice has demonstrated an inability to cope with the problem. As time has gone on, we've actually seen the number of suspensions increasing since the policy was enacted, which suggests that players just don't, players simply don't think that it is in any way a deterrent, and deterrence doesn't work as a model. So for me, I I agree with the axiom that says that if you're looking at the outcomes, and these are the outcomes, at some point you accept that the policy is what's causing the outcomes. Um, So for me, I look at the current policy as very much to the extent it was designed to deter or reduce domestic violence, very much a failure. But if we're looking at it from, okay, this is now we know what we can do better. We can look at it more of a success in that way. But it's really been nothing more than PR. And the biggest thing that we have to do for those of us who write about baseball or tweet about baseball or make any kind of living off of baseball is we need to we need to start talking about these issues in a much more holistic way. We need to accept that this is something that it affects the on-field product just as much as it affects anything off-field. Because when you have a culture that prizes winning above all else, and Rob Manfred even hinted at this in his report about the Astros cheating, 
it is going to leak out in other ways. And this is just one of those examples. And until and unless we get to a point where we can say we are going to treat players as human beings and expect they will treat people around them as human beings also, we're going to see this continue to happen. But when you treat people as commodities, when you treat people as things, that's how they'll learn to treat those around them as well. And that's the culture that's been created in Major League Baseball. And that's one of the reasons why I, I wouldn't keep much about it, but I also wouldn't keep much about the current CBA either for the same reason. So that, that offers a good segue. In what other ways, and there are so many of them, do you see the commodification of players and the constant referring to them as assets permeate in today's game in a negative way, whether it's drawing away fans or just negative to you, or um, you see people talking about it or not talking about it enough? Well, first of all, we in the sports media need to start acknowledging that when we start talking about a player as a valuable asset, dollars per win above replacement, um, things like that are in inherently dehumanizing. We can talk about player value without talking about people as inanimate objects or assets. And that plays into what we've been what basically what the line that has been fed to us by the 30 billionaires who own these teams. But more than that, if you look at how Major League Baseball is set up, right? So you have players where we're always talking about surplus value, where we're trading Mookie Betts for Alex Verdugo because we're saying Mookie Betts is too expensive, uh, where we're not trade, we're not paying players what they're worth because we're trying to suppress salaries, and that was the point of the new CBA with the with the luxury tax that amounts to a hard salary cap. Uh, the goal is to keep player earnings down. And at the same time, in the media, we talk about how these players are not worth what they make. It's all very much it, it's the language of things where we can buy more wins with these other players with these people are now for sale. They're things. But more than that, we see that in the interplay between the major and minor leagues, where you talk about prospects as this sort of future value things that don't have value yet, and where we're paying them $1,100 per month for the six months of the year that they're actually playing. One of the biggest mistakes, I think, that the MLBPA has ever made is not including minor leaguers in its within the ambit of the union. And I think that because as much as the MLBPA believes that that's a separate issue, it's really not. Because what the MLBPA is saying by excluding minor leaguers is that they ascribe to the idea of future value during present versus present value that is inherently dehumanizing and the reason why the current system exists. If the MLBPA tomorrow were to include all minor leaguers, were to say we represent all baseball players across the country in any affiliated league. At that point, ML, the, the, the union would have so much more leverage because at that point, it would be so much harder for baseball as a sport to continue in the event of any kind of work stoppage or lockout. And at the end of the day, yes, the, the billionaires who own MLB teams make their money off of things that aren't related to the aren't related to attendance or concessions or things like that. But the games still need to happen for the gambling revenue to come in. The games still need to happen for the TV revenue to come in. And if you are saying we can essentially stop the product, we are the entire product. That's how you bring MLB to the table. And I think that the, the union has in its own way, intentionally or otherwise, 
assisted in the dehumanization of minor leaguers in its attempt to try and prop up the salaries of current major leaguers. And I think it's been to its own detriment. And so it's, a, again, it's a very multifaceted problem. But we see this on many different levels with institutions beyond just the league itself. And the more we buy into this idea of players having quantifiable value only, the more we dehumanize players, the more we treat them like things, and the more we're, we're going to have players treating the people around them as things because that's what they know. So this this ties back into how it all starts from the top down from ownership treating players as assets to players treating people around them as assets. Do you think that um, that the, the pervasiveness of this kind of asset um, mindset will ever become better than it is um, just by quote-unquote osmosis or um, and, and I know the answer to this already it's no it won't get better um, but what can what what can the league sit down and and do with the MLBPA to stop that pervasive mindset because ultimately people aren't going to just stop referring to players as assets the media isn't no. just going to stop doing that what can be done besides because giving players more money isn't going to make them less of assets in the minds of some of these people. So it's not just as simple as, you know, pay the players. Of course more, not. Which, so, so what should be done? So the first thing is we need to stop expecting the league to do anything about it because the league never, ever will. The, the sport, and I say this a lot, the sport very much reflects society. And to expect 30 billionaires, all of whom are among the 600 wealthiest people in the country, to expect them to suddenly stop viewing people as assets when that's how they made their money in the first place is, I think, naive. Um, I'll put it that way. Uh, Steve Cohen, who everyone was happy was going to be respectively buying the Mets, now he's not, but Steve Cohen made his billions by being among the most notorious insider traders in the history of the United States. And insider trading is essentially a, uh, it's a species of fraud legally. So uh, when you have people who make their money through exploitation of other people, they're not going to suddenly buy a baseball team and stop exploiting other people. In order for this to stop, the union has to do a better job than what it's done before. And yes, including minor leaguers is, part, is a huge part of that because you cannot simultaneously say, don't dehumanize us, but you can dehumanize that other group over there that's basically doing the same job. Um, that's a huge part of it. The union also has to start insisting on something different than these, the current service time rules. Because the service time rules are one of the biggest, they're one of the biggest incentives to treat players as assets. Um, and one of, the, one of the things I wrote about for Beyond the Box score earlier this month was why the union should fire Mark Irvings, the current arbitrator who ruled against uh, Chris Bryant and his grievance against the Cubs relating to when the Cubs manipulated his service time in 2015. And Irvings opinion basically boils down to the the league does not have to comply with a covenant of good faith and fair dealing in the CBA. And at some point, if you are going to have a contract with someone and you're going to say, so I'm, I'm right, making a contract with you, John, but don't expect me to act in good faith. 
there's no way that we will ever be on equal footing with respect to with respect to that relationship. So I think that the union needs to take a much harder line with this. They need to start flexing the muscle that they do have. They need to ex- they need to state specifically, we expect that the league is going to act in good faith. There need to be penalties for it. And the and the union needs to act in such a way that demonstrates that they there are red lines that they will not uh, allow to be crossed. Um, my colleague Bill Thompson at Beyond the Box War wrote a piece about how Manfred very skillfully is using this Astros debacle as a means to divide the union. And Manfred is a labor lawyer. He knows exactly what he's doing. But once again, he's using a, a scandal as a means to keep the players divided and and thereby keep the union weak. And the union falls for it every single time. And what the union needs to be telling players right now is the reason that the Astro scandal happened was because this was very much a setup from the beginning. The, this was something that the Astros designed as a way to maximize their own profits. And it was never for the, for the sake of the players. But once again, the players were the tools in the broader scheme. And Manfred is giving and it's again giving can is giving ammunition for the for the players to shoot at each other rather than realize how much the league is still playing them and we see this with everything from you're not allowed to wear shoes of a certain color to you're not allowed to use the Mets new clubhouse if you are a minor leaguer all of these things that are designed to sow resentment between players such that the players cannot unite against the league in collective bargaining so I saw Trevor Plouffe, former um, MLB player, tweet today that he's seen a lot of people say that a lot of this is stoked by Manfred, as you said, to turn the players against each other, at least somewhat, and stop unity. Um, he said, and uh, quote, people are going to talk about the players being divided. Quote, he's saying this and he's saying that, um, unquote. Truth, there's some anger out there, but I promise you when it comes down to it, the union will be strong. What? does he have besides having been a player to go off of that? I mean, does he think that when it comes down to it, it seems like he thinks that when it comes down to it, the players will be united. What, what, what are the positives here? What do they have to be united behind right now, despite all of this that's going on? Well, they have one of the best labor litigators in the country and Bruce Meyer. Um, and beyond that, not much. The last CBA was very much a disaster, as we're as we've seen over the past few years with the free agent market, with increasing amounts of tanking, um, and with domestic violence policy. This is all. All of this was very foreseeable from the time that it was signed. The union has a very large hole to dig out of, and it it is really discouraging just how willing the union is to divide. The, the world of baseball players by protecting only a group, a specific group of major leaguers. And I say a specific group of major leaguers because it doesn't even cover all major leaguers. You're seeing the union do essentially the league's bidding in instances like with Micah Bowie, the, the former major league pitcher who suffered catastrophic injuries as a result of his playing career. And the league and, and the union is fighting him and has been fighting him for years on health care benefits to make it so that he can't afford the treatment that he needs as a result of his playing career. And that's, again, doing the league's job for it. Um, and the union needs to recognize that it has a lot more in common with 
the with the up and down players, with the AAA shuttle guys, with the with minor leaguers, with guys who are the 25th man on the bench than it ever will with the billionaires on the other side of the table. Um, it's it goes back to the old axiom that there is a every every single player. It, and this is paraphrasing an axiom, you know, really well, but every single player is three months away from three bad months away from being out of the league. And no player is three good months away from being a billionaire. So at the end of the day, you really have to if you're the the union, you really have to recognize just how little in common you have with the billionaires on the other side of the table, that your interests will never be aligned. If Major League Baseball vanished tomorrow, all 30 billionaires would be absolutely fine. This is just another investment to them. And they'd go on and find something else to put their money in. But if Major League Baseball vanished tomorrow, a lot of people who play it for a living would be destitute. Would That would be the end of their dreams. They, ca- they care about it in a way that the owners simply don't. And Manfred's job is not and never will be to protect the sport. It is and always will be to protect the 30 billionaires who are who hired him to protect their profits and their interests. And that's what the union needs to recognize, that they are not negotiating with baseball. They are negotiating with a bunch of billionaires about the value of their investments. And until they get there, I think you're going to see this dynamic repeat itself over and over again. So on that, on, on what Manfred's job is, which you are objectively correct, it is to please the 30 billionaires. I've seen people suggest that the commissioner be more of an independent arbiter of sorts between the union um, and the, the teams. Do you see that being at all feasible or because the ownership is inextricably linked to the league itself? Is that pretty impossible to to do? So long as the antitrust exemption exists, I think that's pretty impossible to do. And I say that because the the antitrust exemption, which is which basically is what gives the league this plenary power, is such that any, quote unquote, impartial person, so long as the antitrust exemption exists, will be acting pursuant to an antitrust exemption granted to the owners and therefore beholden to the owners. Um I think that if you're going to have an impartial person, it's not a bad idea, but it would require changes to the major league constitution that are never going to happen because the owners will never surrender that control. Even if there were to be some kind of impartial appointee, the reality is that as long as the paycheck is coming from the league, um, we're going to see instances like what happened with Mark Irving's. There's a reason why studies have shown that arbitrators tend to to side slightly more with the league than they do with the players. And there are studies on this that even there are, there is always an unconscious bias in some of these arbitrations towards the person paying the bill. So at the end of the day, what we're what we're looking at is a structure that will always be for profit until and unless there is a substantive change to the model, either by the union incorporating minor leaguers or by the elimination of the antitrust exemption, or some combination of the two. Because so long as the system is structured the way it is, it's simply not going to be possible to have a commissioner who isn't beholden to the owners in as by effect, if not by design. So 
those are all very good points that I agree with, um, because I think it's it's really easy for people on Twitter, especially to wave a magic wand and say, well, if, if this just happened, then, um, you know, it would be so much easier for the players and they're right. But it, it's not that easy. Can you explain the antitrust exemption for, for listeners who might not get what it is exactly? Because we hear that term thrown around a lot. And oh, I think it's, it's pretty unclear to a lot of people what it is and what it um, allows owners to do that if it was a normal business, they would not be allowed to. So there is a law called the Sherman Antitrust Act. Um, and it was it's attributed to Teddy Roosevelt, but it actually predates him by about 20 years. And essentially, it is a pro-competition law. The, the law is designed to prevent the coordination of different entities, such as to fix prices or to reduce competition. Um, so it's basically the law that prevents Comcast and AT&T from going together and having a meeting and saying, we will agree that all Internet service across the country will be a million dollars an hour. That's a, It's an oversimplification, but that will suffice for our purposes. Um, there is an exemption that Congress granted to Major League Baseball from that uh, from that pro-competition law. And what that basically means is that Major League Baseball has the ability to do things that are considered inherently anti-competitive without running afoul of the Sherman Antitrust Act. One of the clearest ways this plays out is with minor league pay. Ordinarily, um, the, a minor leaguer could bring an action saying, this is an anti-competitive labor cartel. You are at your 30 entities acting in concert to force down minor league wages. However, because of the antitrust exemption, you can't do that. Um, Garrett Brocious, who is a fantastic attorney, is bringing his minor league uh, wage cases on under the Fair Labor Standards Act and a couple of state wage laws, which is a, a different set of statutes. Um, but the, the clearest route for players to challenge abuses by the league if the antitrust exemption didn't exist, would be the Sherman Antitrust Act. So um, one thing we see a lot and a question I get a lot is, why is it that you see NFL players sometimes sue the league for things that NFL arbitrators do? And you don't see that with Major League Baseball. So most most notably with Spygate, when Tom Brady sued the NFL, um, the, in that particular instance, he was able to do that because there is no antitrust exemption. Um, but in this incident, in this instance, it's really a lot harder because Congress has essentially said anti-competitive behavior within certain limits is OK, provided that it's within the ambit of Major League Baseball. And it goes back to Major League Baseball being our, quote unquote, national pastime. And what it allows is for this sort of extremely twisted business model that has developed that you really couldn't get away with in any other professional sport. So my final question for you, because I think we've we've talked about a lot here and we've, we've given the listeners a lot to digest here. What ultimately would you say ties all of this together? Who's to blame here? And what should we as fans be most aware of? I think what we as fans have to be most aware of is that at the end of the day, we do vote with our dollars. That is the language that billionaire owners understand. And yes, at the end of the day, ticket prices don't and, and ticket sales don't mean a whole lot to the owners since that's not really where they make their money. But at the same time, you can send a message 
with how you spend, with what you spend. Um, the, the, the best example of where we are, I think, is with the Chicago Cubs, the Ricketts family, one of the largest and wealthiest ownership groups of any professional sports franchise in the world. They only installed 42 ADA accessible, wheelchair accessible, ADA compliant seats in a 42,000 seat stadium when they uh, renovated Wrigley Field because they wanted to save money, even though it violated the statute. And when they were sued for it, their response was to retaliate by saying, we're not putting in anymore. This, this stuff matters. And it's not just off-field stuff. Because when you're talking about this, when you, whether you're talking about a domestic abuser who is playing the game because of a system that completely ignores what he did, or when you're talking about somebody who can't go to a game because they can't get into the stadium because they are disabled or in a wheelchair, or whether you're talking about a minor leaguer who can't afford to keep playing or pursuing their dream because they're getting paid $1,000 a month for five months out of the year. The common thread through all of this is dehumanization. And in that way, Major League Baseball is reflective of society itself. So this is not just a baseball issue. But at the end of the day, just like you do with anything else, you vote with your dollars. And so when you are watching, when you're attending games, when you are experiencing baseball this baseball season, keep in mind the message you want to be sending and what and what you want your dollars and your votes with those dollars to say about you and what your values are. All right. I want to thank um, Michelle Ring once again for joining me on episode three of the Shaded Towards Left podcast. Um, it was great having her on. And um, she can be found on Twitter at Ring Cheryl. Um, I think there's an, there's an underscore in there. Ring underscore Cheryl. Um, so be sure to give her a follow. And uh, thanks again, Cheryl. Thanks so much for having me.